Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. I'm really excited to share this first of a two-part episode with my enigmatic and creative friend, Stephen J. Morris, who is a co-founder of the punk band Benedict Arnold and the Traders, as well as two other bands that you'll hear about in this episode. Actually, you'll hear about it in the second episode, as that's about the point where I'm breaking this up. This episode is about music, art, poetry, and growing up in 1960s Hollywood in a not-so-classical glitzy experience for a kid who would grow up under its influences to embrace politics and co-found a punk band that once opened for Black Flag. He's also got a deep musical knowledge and appreciation across genres, so he later went on to critique music and introduce listeners to the magic of new, old music discovery. One of the most notable things about talking with Stephen is his ability to capture an era so fully as though you're talking to a broadcaster and a historian at the same time. It is a fascinating account of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s Los Angeles experience during that very tumultuous time and how the effects of not just key events happening throughout the nation, but also across the world affected his perspective and foray into politics. So please grab a cuppa and join Stephen J. Morris and I in this In the Company of Friends talk. Enjoy. Greetings from the Catskills Mountain. (laughs) Greetings. I'm so excited that we get to talk again because it's been so long. Yeah. So, bada bing, bada boom. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited to have Stephen J. Morris with me today. He's had a lifelong passion for art and especially music. He was born in East Hollywood and grew up in Los Angeles during the 1960s. He's a founding member of the experimental punk rock band, Benedict Arnold and the Traders, and has also put out solo albums. He was a stand-up poet, folk singer. He continues to write manuscripts and poetry and posts a lot of it on a blog that's called The Bio of a Temperamental Artist which showcases contemporary poetry, political opinion, and biographical accounts. 
He's also the host of a page called Adventures in Garage Land, which is devoted to garage bands and music in general. So I'll be posting links to all of this in the show notes. He's married to his soulmate, Pamela, who is one of my favorite people on the planet as well. And their adventure has seen them as my treasured neighbors for many years yet definitely not enough, before they struck out with their beloved pets in tow to such idyllic places as a Brookside home in Oregon. They had a wonderful home in San Jacinto, California, and finally the beautiful tranquility of upstate New York. So I'm so excited to have one of my most creative and edgiest friends, Stephen, join me today. So please grab a cuppa and join us for an amazing adventure. Howdy. Hi, Stephen. Howdy. How are thee? How art I? Um, I am super excited to have you on because I think it's been, oh my goodness. I think Cameron was still in grade school when you guys left. I remember you taking your kids to school every morning and uh, you getting in the car with their stuff going to school early in the morning. Because I used to walk Joshua and Weston that time in the morning. Those are my two dogs. Joshua and Weston. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Weston used to bark <laughs> at you every time you walked by. He was a big golden retriever. And if he stood on his tiptoes of yeah. his hind legs, <laughs> his head could stick out over the fence. And he was just a happy dog. He just wanted to say hello. That's right. <laughs> You've had a lot of adventures between then and now. I'm thinking we start off at the beginning, like when you grew up in Southern California, right? You grew up in Hollywood and um, it was like 1960s Hollywood, very classic era. What was your childhood like and what were some of the key events, I guess, that laid the foundation for your creativity? Actually... I had a sucky childhood. Mm. It was bad. I had an abusive father. My mother was neurotic. But I was sure glad when my dad went to work so I could be alone with her. She uh, she was the artist. She went to art school. And uh, she could have been something. I mean, she could have been a major artist. But she gave it up to take care of us kids, mm-hmm. to raise us. And uh, that was a big sacrifice. Uh, when the 80s came around, she decided, I'm going to go back to art. And that's why you have all these paintings all over the place. Yes. She just, she was prolific. I mean, just one painting after another. So that's where I got my inspiration. And I would find out years later that she was a singer. I never knew that until in my 40s. She took lessons and she used to sing in front of the family. So that's where I got my musical inspiration. Yeah. She also liked, now she was a Jewish woman, Mm -hmm. okay? She liked country and Western music. (laughs) She used to listen to it in her room. Strangely enough, I could sing country and Western. Now... I get my artistic ability from her. My political rebellion comes from my dad because he was angry all the time. Mm. But I put it all together and you get me. Yeah, very complex, creative person. And you did put it all together because there's a lot of political commentary that goes on in the music that you produced. Absolutely. That came from uh, the early 60s when the folk music scene came on 
it was something popular with college students. But also the blues came around that at time. So people who bad rap the boomer generation, we took the blues, which was dying from being ignored, being shunned, and put it back into the popular consciousness. Nobody knew who Muddy Waters was, or John Lee Hooker, Howling Wolf. Nobody knew who they were, but the British put them in the forefront. So same thing with the folk singers. Uh, let's take one folk singer, okay? Pete Seeger. Mm-hmm. If you ever listen, have you ever listened to his music? A little bit. Okay. He, uh, he had the greatest voice ever. But uh, back in the day, in the 50s, he was with a folk band called The Weavers, and they had a smash hit in 1950 called Goodnight Irene, and it was the most popular song in America. Everywhere he went, you could hear it. But the 1950s, a bad time in America. <laughs> he was a member of the Communist Party, and they took him down. They put him in front of uh, committees, He had a, and he ended up in prison for three years. Wow. And he was totally ignored. He used to uh, ride the rails with Woody Guthrie. They used to travel together because this was during the Depression. Nobody owned a car. So they'd jump on a train and go to California or whatever. And he ended up uh, doing coffee houses, uh, all sorts of stuff. But towards the, the late 50s, he was unknown. He was forgotten. Then we come, my generation, we discover him. And put him in the forefront. Yeah, I just put up a video today of Pete Seeger singing with Donovan. It's a great video. Out mm, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. So how do I come in the picture? I don't. <laughs> well, that's what you listen to there, right? So you were listening to that. And I think it's easy for us to forget these later generations because we didn't live through that era of blackballing. Exactly. Right. Um, And I know blacklisting. Blacklisting. Yes. Thank you. The blacklisting era and that communism era. Because I know uh, even Lucille Ball had to go before Congress because she was a member of the Communist Party. And I think a lot of celebrities became part. But you you know why she uh, got out of Mm -hmm. it? Because America loved her. Mm -hmm. She was the number one TV actress. So they couldn't get her. She was too popular. Do you know when she had her baby on the TV show? Mm -hmm. Half America was in front of their TVs watching it. It was the highest rated show in history. America shut down when she had her baby. Can you imagine America did that to you when you had your baby? (laughs) So she was too popular. Uh, Pete Seeger was known known by very few people. But she had she had the popularity. Mm-hmm. I did you ever watch her movies from the forties? They're really good in the thirties. Lucille Ball was a good actress back in those days. You know, if you ever see it uh, listed, one of her movies from the forties, mm-hmm. check it out. In nineteen fifty nine, I was raised in a house where I didn't have any friends or anything. We were locked in the house. I have a childhood memory. I was sitting in my front lawn playing with a butterfly. I was, I don't know, three years old. And this black man was sitting in the car. And he looked at me, smiling, laughing. 
My mom comes rushing out of the house, picks me up, and takes me inside the house. That was my first experience with racism. Mm -hmm. But then, in 1959, she took me to school for the first time. And I just lost it. I freaked out. So I don't want to go. I was pulling her. And all of a sudden, teacher inside had to come and they had to pull me in. And that's how my school career started. I didn't even know who the president of the United States was. <laughs> you know when I knew? Mm -hmm. When Kennedy got assassinated. Because I didn't even know who the president was. The year before that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was like the end of the world. But my parents kept it from us. Us kids, my sister and I, my brother. We never knew what happened. But the Kennedy thing, I saw adults cry for the first time in my life. Yeah. We had a day off from school. I went to Dallas. I hadn't been there before. Um, maybe five or six years ago, I went for my cousin's wedding, uh, went by myself, and I had this long list of places that I wanted to hit and, you know, just check out. And I saw the book Depository. Oh my and, and actually, my cousin's mom, Doris, was working at that depository when the assassination happened. Um, no. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so wow. it's, you know, it's kind of crazy how they, you know, they say that there's six degrees of separation from everything. And so there's definitely just a couple there for me. And the, the really... Um, Oh, I guess it was a little bit sad thing is that that knoll where President Kennedy was shot, there's a beautiful sculpture that's there and it's well marked, but there's a freeway on ramp right beside it. And it's really hard to get to. It's very congested, that area of Dallas. So, you know, I did find a parking space somewhere, had to walk a couple of blocks, had to dodge cars that were trying to get onto this on-ramp so that I could go over and check it out. But um, it really puts you in a different place in time. And and it's just, you know, you step into it and, it and it does make you sad, but they've done a really good job in memorializing it and explaining the cultural feel of that time period and, and all of the events that led up to that tragedy and then the things that went on afterwards. And really interesting, quick aside, and then we'll get back to your story. I've got relatives in town from Costa Rica. So yesterday I spent the whole day traipsing them all over Los Angeles. And we ended up in Koreatown on Wilshire Boulevard over by the Wiltern is where the Ambassador Hotel used to be. Used to be. Where Robert F. Kennedy was shot. And yeah. of course you can't find any parking anywhere. We were looking for an ice cream place and we found it. And it was delicious. That was around the corner. But we ended up driving past the Memorial Park that's there, which is gorgeous and has some really amazing tributes written on stone. So kind of full circle. It's interesting you mentioned the Ambassador mm -hmm. Hotel. Pam and I went to a New Year's party at the Coconut Grove there in 1984, and we danced the New Year's into that. Plus, I went to a conference about the Kennedy assassination, and I met Jerry Rubin, the yippie. Wow. Yeah. So, where was I? 1964. I want to hold your hand. The Beatles. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it was such an antithesis of the Kennedy thing. Everything, when Kennedy got assassinated, broadcasting was all canceled. The only thing you heard on the radio was classical music, and television went into repeats. People were going around crying. It was it was like the apocalypse, post-apocalyptic. Then, three months later, these mop tops from England came, and uh, four guys... I said, they look like girls. That's when everything changed. All the screaming. We went to see Hard Day's Night, two blocks from my house at the Pan Pacific Theater. For the first time, that theater was packed. There was not a seat available. And you know what happened? Hmm. They were screaming at the movie screen. (laughs) They were screaming. (laughs) Do you think that that level of emotion was a release of a period of mourning and all of the shock that that assassination of JFK brought about. That's a good, uh, that's a good opinion there. Uh, Yes. Yes. Everybody was suppressed. They had a hold in their feelings. Nobody was allowed to smile. Yeah. It was like a a catharsis. Mm -hmm. It was a cathartic moment. And uh, then I told my mom, and she's, oh, they used to do that with Elvis. <laughs> That's but true. And then she told me, before that, Frank Sinatra and the Bobby Sox, they were the, he was the first one to get screamed at. Uh, my mom was a fan of Frank Sinatra. But, uh, so that's nothing new. Here, the Beatles came, and I wasn't into it. You know, I was into baseball. Then 1965 came. All bets were off. And I could write a whole book about 1965 music. It just came rushing down a mountain like a landslide. And it all came in this little transistor radios. <laughs> and you could get them for, well, the, to us it was $5 is a lot of money. The sound sucked, but you could hear the music. Those were really tinny, right? They they were little boxes with a little yeah. tiny antenna that came. But back in that time... I remember my grandfather had one. Oh, yeah. Really? And it was a good sized brick of a little radio. Yeah. And he had this leather punched cover to protect it with these big snaps, you know, so fit tightly around there and you could grip it and it wouldn't fall. He protected that thing, but it did have a very tinny, nostalgic, old time <laughs> sound to it that came that came out of there. And I was very young. So, you know, I didn't understand how this thing worked. I was always trying to figure out how did this music come out of here? <laughs> uh. When I went to junior high school, we had electric shop, and one of our assignments was to make a transistor radio. Wow. I failed. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) So you don't know how the music comes out of there either. (laughs) It was crystals. Something crystals getting the the radio waves from the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not very technical. Matter of fact, the reason we're talking together is because Pamela You know, it's, no, I'm really bad at it's funny because I have another friend whose uh, wife spent a really long time trying to get us connected as well. So yay for the technological wives that are out there that are allowing me to connect with my friends. I love it. <laughs> uh, I'm, well, I'm just stupid. No, you're not. <laughs> yes, I am. All right. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. 
think you're very smart, Stephen. <laughs> well, I had a, I was enumerate, which you probably don't know what that means, but enumerate is same as dyslexia. I have trouble with numbers. I have trouble adding and subtracting. They used to give me tutors when I was a kid, and I just didn't get it. So, oh, I bet concepts. Well, that's interesting. What about concepts like time and money? Did that just totally throw you off? Because you could have two quarters, but it's not two, it's 50, right? Or you could have 60 minutes and that's a full hour. Or I guess the other way, you know, you look at it, it's one hour, but it's 60 minutes. It's not a hundred. I remember working with kids in school, uh, you know, second and third grade when those concepts are being brought about. And there were a lot who, you know, that was just torture for them because it was so hard, especially if it was, you know, like two quarters and a nickel and two pennies. And you're like, this is 56 cents. And they're like, but there's four things and they're different sizes and different colors. And Hmm. was that worse for you? They tried everything. I used to get these headaches, mm. but uh, eventually they just, uh, he's stupid, so forget about oh. it. But, but what happened was they put me back a couple of grades. Oh, really? A was couple? Sitting- For math only? Yeah. But you understood, you understood language fine and everything else. I think that's kind of a yeah. trademark of that time period, too, where that's what schools would do. You know, that's... Believe me... The L.A. school district, for lack of a worse term, sucked because they uh, they didn't know what I was going through. Mm-hmm. They used to call, haul my mom into school, scaring the shit out of her. And uh, she didn't know what to do. So they just let me go. And I just meandered through the semesters. Then I got in trouble. I hung around gang members. Expectedly yeah. so, if that's what's happening. Ah, uh, sorry. They, yeah, they put me into these uh, underachiever mm-hmm. classes, and they were all hoodlums. I, I befriended them. It was the dumbest thing Uh-oh. I ever did. Yeah, so uh, got involved with gangs. Tried to start my own gang, but it was a joke. <laughs> um, but, you know, what a, what a blessing, right, that it did end up being a joke. Yeah. Well, it didn't end up good because in 1969, I was jumped an alley and I was beaten to the inch of Mm. my life. And why they were beating me, they took me back to their apartment to work me over. Oh my gosh, how scary. You know what was, yeah, they all listened to a radio station. It was a soul station. Anyway, you know what was playing on the radio while they were beating me up? Mm. My cherry amore. Oh gosh. Uh, You know what? It's a great song, it's sung well, performed well, but I can't mm-hmm. listen to it. So what happened was I just quit the whole scene. I, I want to live till I'm 17. <laughs> so how old were you at that time? At the time that I got jumped, I was 15. Wow. Did you end up in the hospital? Uh, no. I came home and my mom said, what happened to you? Because my face is black and blue and there's scars all over my face. And I said, oh, a dog attacked me. Mm. I didn't want to worry. Yeah. But uh, that was the end of that life. Good. I got arrested a year prior for, we were trying to have a gang fight with another gang. And they uh, ambushed. We were ambushed. And luckily I ran quick. 
They didn't get me. So then uh, some kids ratted on me. And uh, they came to my school. And the cop, I was sitting in the vice principal's office. And the cop says, Mr. Morris, you're under arrest. Oh, my gosh. For vandalism. Yeah. For vandalism. Yeah. But we're going to release you on your own recognizance. So here's the, he gave me a ticket. My mom took me to court. So that was a mess. Now, the whole thing, the life-changing experience mm-hmm. was, you're just speaking about it. Robert F. Kennedy's assassination. Uh, I was campaigning for him. I volunteered. Oh, really? I was wow. A, yeah. I used to go down the street and tear down the Gene McCarthy for president uh, <laughs> stickers and put the Robert F. Kennedy. <laughs> well, anyway, when he got assassinated, my whole life turned. And the first thing I said, fuck America. And that's what happened. That's how I became a radical. Mm. I was angry. He was a wonderful... I thought he was... Never mind. Yeah, well, that, I mean... Those were some very tumultuous years, you know, when you you knit them together like that. And I think that, you know, a lot of times we'll watch documentaries of those time periods, but they distill each event, right? And then when you're knitting them together like this, it's like your entire life was... Uh, you know, your your life through your early 20s was lived during a very volatile time in America. And it was one event after the next event after the next event. And weren't there some riots too during that time period? Okay, I'm going to get to that. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but what, um, I guess when you're seeing that much civil unrest, I guess, you know, it, it could create a sense of there's a lack of safety and uncertainty of what the future might bring. And I'm just kind of right now, as I'm talking about it, kind of connecting it with the younger generation that's been living through, you know, it's just went through 2020 and 2021. And of course, you know, here we are in 2022 and things seem a little bit better, but there's this overarching theme of uncertainty and the possibility of continued violence and death from COVID. Um, so I can, it's just interesting to me to look at those similarities that are kind of reappearing from the 60s. I'm glad. I'm here to teach. But uh, Let's go back to 68. Which was the worst year ever? Worst year, in my opinion. I think it was before Kennedy, Martin Luther King got shot. I was in a school where only 20% of the kids were white. After uh, Martin Luther King got assassinated, we had race fight, racial fights. They used to beat us up when we used to go to the bathroom, and uh, it was ugly. It was ugly. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand why. So, the year after I got beat up, I decided to study and learn. So, when I came to Fairfax in the autumn of 1969, is that your cat? My cat just walked in, yes. (laughs) Do you have a black cat? I do. I have, uh, the black one is named Cytheria, and most of the time you will not hear her because, you know, Cytherism is the sound of the leaves whispering to each other as the wind moves them. 
And that's definitely Sithy. She does not make very much noise. And the only time you hear her is when she's wrestling through stuff. The one that just came in is the tabby, the silver tabby Echo. Oh, yeah. Because she talks a lot. (laughs) Yeah, we we have a neighbor has a black cat and she keeps coming over our house. Oh, well, yeah, you guys are such animal loving uh, where I could see that a cat, you know, any animal would just come over and want to be near you. Yeah, especially this black cat. Her name is Gemma. I just love black cats. I don't know. I'm enthralled with them. You you know, you look at them. What's the first thing you look at at them? Their eyes. Their golden eyes. (laughs) Anyway, what were we talking? Some negative shit? Uh, Uh, Yeah, yeah. you were talking about, um, unfortunately, getting beat up in the bathrooms. Yeah. Okay, after all that violence, I go to the new high school, Fairfax High, and then all of a sudden, I'm in Haight-Ashbury in 1967, Berkeley College in 1968. It was nothing but hippies. Everybody was happy, dancing around, hugging each other. So that's where I changed. I came across with a lot of artists, folk singers. Everybody had a guitar. Everybody sat in front of the school and played music. And uh, we had these deep conversations, philosophical conversations. My whole world was turned upside down. So that's where it all began. So while you were at Berkeley, I mean... No, Fairfax High. Oh, you were at Fairfax High. Okay. Yeah. Um, But... The influence of Berkeley had come down into Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And the black people got along with SDS. There was no racial stride. It was love and peace. I swear to God, it was love and And peace. What's SDS? Students for a Democratic Society. I was a member of SDS. When uh, Columbia back in 68, when the students took over, it was because of SDS. So I told myself, someday I'm going to join that group. Two years later, I did. And what were there marches or what, what was the um, what was the mission of SDS? To stop the war, to have a revolution, to end poverty, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so I'll tell you a quick story because this is going to end up to be eight hours. <laughs> That's okay. There was a mass mobilization against the war in November 1969. We, SDS, we met at a folk club called the Ash Grove, and uh, we decided to come to school all dressed up in black and carry a coffin of dead soldiers. It was just, you know, a fake coffin. And uh, we decided to march and try to get the students to have a student strike. So we marched in front of the school. Hundreds of students were gawking at us. And we say, join us, join us. And they just went, (laughs) suddenly the football players came. One ran into our line, our picket line, took a banner and ripped it apart. And all his friends were going, yeah, yeah, get those gummies, yeah. So that was my introduction. Yeah. But a few months later, just after uh, Kent State, the teachers in L.A. school district went on strike. And then we had a protest to support the teacher. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the school was there. There was 4,000 people marching. So 
Wow. You know, again, I'm struck by the similarities and political divide that has always colored the American landscape, regardless of what era you're looking at, with your story of marching to stop the war, or at least to bring attention to it, and then having a, another whole group that would be against that. We called them jocks. <laughs> the jocks. Oh, wow. Okay, that's, I just gave you a summary of my past. Yeah, yeah. So you started to get into your creative phase of life, which has not ended and and probably existed prior to that, but was being somehow locked away because of what was going on in your environment. But yes, you finally were able to allow it to come out. And, you know, a lot of people will ask what came first, the chicken or the egg. But with you, I guess the question is what came first, writing or music? Music, Mm. music. The 70s overall as a decade was a transitional decade, but all activism went to sleep. People were exploring their inner souls, which we call new age now. Mm -hmm. Other people decided to have families, have kids. And uh, some people pursued the artistic route. Me, I was stuck in politics. I was uh, on the Peace and Freedom Central Committee, and I was still doing the activism thing. But then came around 78, because you know what I was doing all through the 70s? Hmm. I got a Sears tape recorder. I used to write songs and sing into them, sing in the tape I have a whole stack of tapes of me from the 70s, and they're really embarrassing now and you listen <laughs> to them. But uh, I kept saying, nah, you're not good enough. And then uh, I had a little breakdown in 78, a little mental breakdown. And I uh, went to a psychiatrist, plus I was breaking up with my girlfriend, and uh, he gave me antidepressants. One day I went to a little creek in the mountains, Santa Monica Mountains. And I decided to go forward my music career. So I went home and took all the drugs and flushed them down the toilet. And you know what I did? I went to Venice Beach and decided to become a street singer. That's where it all started. Wow. Yeah. Well, breaking up with somebody will make you go into feeling like you're having a mental breakdown. That's for sure. That's one of the the biggest stressors in life uh, besides being in a bad car accident or a death or something like that. Um, So you just went up into the Santa Monica Mountains to this creek and meditated meditated yeah yeah because you know meditation the perfect mantra is by a stream you could hear the trickle of the water and you could get in your inner soul that way that's what i did mm-hmm. and i and i fired my shrink you know the very end of herman hess's story siddhartha oh yeah it i read that yeah, it ends with, you know, all the voices that are coming from that river while he's sitting next to it just before yeah. he transcends into the Buddha. So I could see, you know, that calming. It just water always has a calming effect like that, doesn't it? I love it when it rains, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially at night. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good meditation companion, that's for sure. Right, right. So uh, that it was that time period where I started to go to open mic nights. I even did a country set. Really? In uh, the valley, yeah. Was this your your own 
writing or did you do covers or a combination? My own writing. My own writing. Wow. My own writing. And I never knew where that came from. <laughs> now I know. Mm -hmm. So that's how the whole thing started. Did your mom sit with you and teach you how to read music or play instruments? No. All she liked to do is talk about uh, fairy tales and science fiction. She always talked about the future, what the future was going to be like. She had a very imaginative mind mm -hmm. and a uh, very soft voice. You know what? I saw a picture of your mother. Mm -hmm. Your mother sort of looks like my mother. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Blew my mind when I saw that. <laughs> Well, I think they were kind of alive in the same time period. So that the flowing hair and yeah. 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 Oh, that's sweet. When I was a little boy and my mom used to walk down the street mm -hmm. with us kids, all these guys would yell out of the cars, Hey baby! Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I said, Mom, why are they whistling at you? They think I look like a Disney character. Oh, oh my gosh. That is a good response. Wow. Ugh. I didn't know what sex was. Yeah. Hey, baby. Where are you going, baby? Ditch the kids. Oh, gosh. But she was attractive. She could have been a model. Mm -hmm. She could have been a model. Well, she just sounds like such a talent, you know? I mean, she had so much going for her. And, you know, looks come and go. And it's nice to have them, that's for sure, because it opens doors, a lot of doors for you. But... I mean, just her painting skills, her musical skills, and, you know, being able to take care of you guys. That was, yeah, it's a lot. And you know what? Hmm. I found out that she had schizophrenic paranoia. Hmm. They, they, they put her on electric shock therapy when she was 14. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that was a trauma to her. But uh, did they do it multiple times? Because I know that. That is still a treatment that's used to this day. And it's not, I don't know what it was like then, but I know that, you know, they put you under anesthesia and it's a much gentler treatment. Woody Allen has used that to cure his depression. Mm -hmm. If you use it judiciously, it could be very beneficial. But back then there were a bunch of barbarians. So uh, it made her totally passive and people took advantage of her. But my dad came around. He protected her. Mm -hmm. Even though he was very um, angry. Yeah. Yeah. He hated me because I represented, I took away his freedom. Were you the firstborn? And how many yes. How many siblings yes. do you have? Um, let's see. I have six. Pretty bad for a Jewish family. <laughs> but <laughs> Jewish families only have two, maybe three if they're not lucky enough. Now, do you want to know about my band? Yes, yes. I know you're a founding member, co-founder of Benedict Arnold and the Traders. That was a really fascinating and interesting stroll down memory lane. Some memories that perhaps some of us did not live through or we have forgotten. And when Stephen puts them together, it's like listening to a very intimate history of world events, national events, and helps put today into perspective. So um, that was such a great episode. And I hope that you will come back next week 
when we start going into Stephen's musical career and some other fascinating tidbits of history in the musical, political, social scene. So be sure to come back. Also, be sure to check the show notes for links to all things Stephen J. Morris, as well as other topics that we talked about. And send me your questions and suggestions to help me design the episodes that most interest you. Please also take a second to rate this episode. Your ratings really do move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I am looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E Podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, confidence, creative endeavors, elegance, and beauty.